0: And let's get a chance just to pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And these minutes we saw this morning and just really scratching the surface of what your word does in our lives. We're so thankful for the fact that it is a living book. It's a living word. It has a living place in our lives. It's ministered by a living Holy Spirit. And, Lord, we thank You for the privilege, as always, to be able to open it up, to surrender our lives to You and to Your Holy Spirit, and to ask You to now fashion us in accordance with Your Word and with Your will. We acknowledge that these chapters are in the Bible for a reason. They're intended to accomplish something in us, Lord. And so we pray that that would be accomplished as we study it this evening. We thank You for the report, Lord of your work in Vicente Guerrero and Lord we just think about all of the cities large and small and towns and every single person all around the world five six billion people every day you're trying to bring them into a relationship with you and then to nurture that relationship and Lord we thank you so much for your long work within our lives to cause the light to go on in our hearts of our need for Christ and And then, Lord, we're so thankful for what you saved us into, this wonderful worldwide family. We thank you for the report that we've received tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for the faith that you gave each one to step forward and to share. Lord, for your glory and also for our blessing and edification this evening. We give you praise tonight, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. First Kings chapter 15 tonight, if you're here this evening and you don't have a Bible, there are men that are coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. You just get their attention and they'll get one into your hands. Sunday night we study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and find ourselves, well, making fair progress through the Old Testament here in First Kings chapter 15, verse 1. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, and he was the king at this time in the northern kingdom of Israel, he was the son of Nebat. During the 18th year of his reign, Abijam became king over Judah. One of the things that's important to understand about this section of the Old Testament is God probably had a couple of choices at least in terms of how he was going to lay this out. He could have just taken and given us the entire history of the northern kingdom of Israel all in one block and then said, all right, hold that thought. I'm going to take you down and give you in one block the entire history of the kings of of the southern kingdom of Judah. But he didn't do that. How he decided to do it was to introduce us to the reign uh, of a king in Israel in the north and then introduce us then to the kings in the south that were reigning at the same time so we could kind of stay uh, current with what was happening all at the same time. And so now uh, he uh, we move now to the southern kingdom of Judah, and uh, we discover here now that Abijam becomes the new king over that southern kingdom of Judah. So in terms of the kings of, of Judah, there was David. Saul before David, but David in terms of his bloodline, then there was Solomon, then there was Rehoboam, and then Abijam. So Abijam is uh, the great-grandson of uh, David and of that, that bloodline. So he comes on the scene uh, now, kind of a 4th A generation following the death of his father, Rehoboam, that's recorded at the end of chapter 14. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His his mother's name was Ma'akah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all of the sins of his father, Rehoboam, who led the southern kingdom of Judah into sin and idolatry, Which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. He wasn't loyal to the Lord of Israel, as was the heart of his father David. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord of his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up. His son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So the uh, this king and so many of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, God allowed them to become king, not because they were worthy of it. These were terrible, uh, wicked uh, men, Uh, but. God, in His grace, allowed them to reign and then would, there would be good kings that would come up in the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And God allowed this, this king, for instance, to reign solely on the basis of God's heart toward David. God had made a promise to David that from his bloodline were going to be the kings of Israel. And so it was no credit to him that he was a king. It was God's grace toward David. Now, one of the things that's interesting in this section of the scriptures is you see each time the kings, whether in the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah, each time they're introduced, God encapsulates their life in just really a sentence. Uh, He gives their name the length of time that they reigned, and then he followed it with either they did that which was evil or wicked in the eyes of the Lord, or he would encapsulate their life by saying, And he did that which was good in the sight of the Lord. God doesn't need to write a a big biography on someone to uh, people's lives are not that complex uh, for him. He created us. He knows what we are. And he looks at our lives and he assesses our lives, not on the basis of complex personality or this or that, but on the basis of whether we obey God's word or we don't obey God's word. And so he speaks here and uh, he would say in a sentence he did which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did what that which was good in the eyes of the Lord. And so the encapsulation is just so simple in terms of the New Testament and uh, the assessment of any individual human's life. One day in the judgment before God himself, uh, there's no big complicated thing that happens before that judgment seat. The Bible says. Uh, that uh, he who has Christ has life and he who does not have Christ does not have the life of God that's found in Christ. So it's very simple. There are saved and unsaved people on the basis of what we've done with Christ. In the words of uh, J. Vernon McGee, there's saints and ain'ts. And so there's, it's that simple. Now, once we become Christians, now God assesses our lives in a little bit different way. And if we have been faithful to obey God's word and faithful to obey his calling upon our life, our salvation hinges on our faith in Christ, not upon our faithfulness to the ministry that God has called us to supremely or anything like that. But the Bible says that we will have an assessment that is favorable if we hear the words from Jesus, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. No Christian, though they may end up in heaven, no Christian who does not hear those words from Christ himself can consider their life and the opportunities that we've been given in Christ, their life to be a success. So there is that assessment. Some will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. The Bible says that some will get into heaven uh, with the faint smell of smoke, Upon them in the sense that they're being judged by fire and uh, everything that how they had spent their life instead of living for God, they would lived for all of these other things that all got burnt up in the judgment, but they got into heaven because of their faith in Christ. And so there is an assessment that is coming in the future related to our lives. And I think it's good as we read about the kings that they aren't just some obscure figures in ancient history. These were men that were called to do something for God, to be something for God. God assessed them and that assessment became a permanent record. And the same thing in a little different vein, even a more serious vein is true of us as Christians, because we're not called to be kings over a physical nation. Uh, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We're the, we're part of the greatest thing that's happening in the world today. The only great thing that's happening in the world today in the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world. And so he was one that was, was one of the wicked, uh, kings of the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. And there was war between Rehoboam uh, and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now, the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam as well. And so Abijam rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David, that is Jerusalem. And then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. So Jeroboam's reigning for a very long time in the north. So we get this cluster of kings of Judah, one after another, without an interruption because, again, of the overlap. And in the 20th year uh, of Uh, Jeroboam, king of Israel, a man by the name of Asa became king over Judah. And he's one of the good kings uh, of Israel. there's a few you've got uh, Jehoshaphat, Asa's one of them where their names are gold because of uh, they were something different in this long line of wicked kings. And so Asa became king over Judah and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. All right, good genes. And uh, God's call upon his life. Uh, You wouldn't want a king to reign for 41 years if he was wicked. But he happens to be a very, very good king. And so these were 41 good years in the history of the southern kingdom uh, of, of Judah. I mean, sometimes we're chomping at the bit for the next presidential election, and it's just four years in between. You can imagine 41 years you're waiting for somebody to die like the Supreme Court justices or something like that. I'm not waiting for anybody to die. I just it's kind of a life uh, position. I didn't really mean to bring that up, but I'm kind of glad I did, actually, and twist the knife just a little bit on things. Like righteous judges, since they is it is it my imagination or do Supreme Court justices all live to one hundred and ten. I must put them on some kind of a vitamin regime or something. They just live forever. Even the one. Well, now we'll go to meddling, so. He reigned 41 years in Jerusalem, and his grandmother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. I almost want to bring the band back out to just do a little peppy song. This is so rare in their history, but it's beautiful. Here is Asa, one-sentence assessment. He'll elaborate on it, but it's real simple for God. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Ad, as did his father David. Now, in Second Chronicles, God really goes into detail concerning the great aspects of Asa's reign. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. One of the things that I want you to notice about Asa, again, is we're going to see this phrase. We're going, we're going to have good kings following evil kings. We're going to have evil kings following good kings. But here we have a man who comes on the scene and is a, a relatively young man, becomes a king over uh, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. His father is just wicked as can be. His grandfather, a very wicked man, introduced idolatry into the, the southern kingdom of Judah. His great-grandfather uh, 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 of, of Solomon introduced idolatry into the nation of Israel as a whole and and set the seeds for their future destruction and being taken captive first by the Assyrians in the north and then by the Babylonians later. And here comes a young man who breaks the trend. And one of the great things I think about Asa is that he teaches us that that we do not have to follow whatever has been our family history. You can have a good human being. You can have a good man and a good woman, a good young man, a good young woman come out of terrible background in terms of drugs or in terms of sin or in terms of gangs or in terms of addictions or in terms of demonic kind of activity. The ability that God gives mankind, because of His involvement in human history, the ability that He gives each and every one of us to step forward and to be able to say, I don't like what my family has been. I don't like those role models. I don't want to be that. I want that cycle to stop in my family tree, and I don't have control of what happens after us, but I want that to stop with me. And when we choose Christ to be our Lord and our savior, he comes into our lives by the Holy Spirit and he gives us the power now to live a different kind of life, no matter what our backgrounds are really irritated me a few years ago. I I like to convince myself it's righteous anger and I'm not trying to put anybody down in this way, but a number of years ago they brought a guy into town. And he was—it was just a big old deal. It really influenced the spiritual um, uh, tone and focus, uh, Christian-wise, of our community for a very long time. And he came in doing this whole generational spirit thing. That even if we're a Christian, even if the Holy Spirit has come into our lives, that we are still in bondage to the spirits that held our parents and held our uncles and our grandparents, and that there was some special work that needed to be done to free us from that trend. And that isn't true at all. Because God is involved in human history, Every single one of us in the world is personally responsible for the life that we live. Even a person who's been raised in tremendous wickedness cannot one day stand before God and say, I rejected your son, I also lived a wicked life, but it was because of my parents. It was because of my grandparents. The reason that that excuse doesn't wash Is because God sent His Son into the world, and by putting our faith in Christ, again, God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and gives us the ability, whatever our history, to live an entirely different life. And it's because of God's involvement in human history and because he's given us that choice to break that hold or that trend in our families that we are then responsible for whether we choose to live a wicked life or we choose to live a good life. We cannot blame prior generations for our choices in terms of the life that we live. Now, if God wasn't a part of the human condition. If he did not uh, was not engaged with us, if he did not send his son into the world, then the excuse would hold. But he is engaged in human history and he did send his son into the world and he's given us this kind of a choice. One of my favorite verses about all of this, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and the church, the church at Corinth was crazy in some ways. And. God bless them and all, but they were that was a high maintenance place for the Lord. But Corinth was a real mess. I mean there there was wickedness like crazy in that city. If you were born and raised in Corinth, you didn't let anybody know it. You'd say I'm from Ceres. I mean, some suburb of Corinth, you wouldn't let them know, because a Corinthian was just a drunken, immoral, immoral bum. That's, it was just a, a terrible, wicked city. And in fact, they tell us historically that when Corinthians were portrayed on the stage in theater, they were always portrayed as as drunks and good-for-nothings, as immoral people. And so here you've got this that You think about Paul, and he's... No, we won't get into that. But tough environment. And the Lord spoke in First Corinthians through Paul, wrote to the, the church at Corinth, all this background that they come from, all the garbage that they came to the Lord out of. And he said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he said. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, those that are practicing these things as a lifestyle, Nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then here's the part that I like. And such were some of you. And it's true in this room too. God pulled us out of all kinds of craziness. Things that we could never be free of. Apart from the Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, such were some of you. And I love that were past tense. We're not that anymore. Sometimes you look at the, you know, uh, uh, AA and the 12-step program, and people will go into it and they'll say, you know, I I am an alcoholic and this in their present tense. And you have even Christians doing that and, and taking on, uh, on as an identity. We are a new creation. When we came to know Christ, the Holy Spirit came into our life. Think about that. God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit came into your life and came into my life. The Bible says God asked. He posed the question to Jeremiah to pose to God's people. Is there anything too difficult for me? God didn't break a sweat the day that I got saved. Oh, my. What are we going to do? I need to create some more angels. There's the Holy Spirit to change our lives. I'm not putting down organizations that help people in a certain kind of way, but we're not like everybody else in the world as Christians. And we have to be careful about how we allow other people to identify us. Such were some of you. That's what we used to be. We're not what we used to be. But you were washed and you were sanctified past tense. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. I think that sometimes in. This teaching, like the generational spirit thing and all of that kind of stuff to me, it kind of upsets me in my spirit a little bit. It it grieves my spirit and it offends me because I'm zealous for God and I know what God has done in my life. And I don't like anything that minimizes the power of God. I don't like. Any single person to come across any doctrine or teaching that causes them to doubt that they can be a miracle of God in an instant, like untold millions of people have been in history because of Jesus Christ. And so here is this this power that that here is Asa able to break all of that, make a decision. I'm going to walk with God and I'm going to see what this looks like. And it's a choice that he made. And it's a choice that all of us uh, can make. There was a in the book of Ezekiel, apparently there was some kind of an excuse that even God's people were using for continuing in their sin And there was this saying that was going around. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So it was basically saying, I am the way that I am because of my parents or because of how I was raised or the background that I came out of. And the Lord's response was this. He said, as I live, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. He said, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just, he shall surely live, says the Lord. And so the Lord was just coming in and saying, even in the Old Testament, a lesser covenant than the one that we have in the blood of Christ. He said, I'm hearing a lot of this, a lot of blaming other people for living below the standard of my commandments and he says I don't accept that everyone has a choice and the freedom to live this life that's described here and the power of the Holy Spirit and I love that truth because my life was transformed the day that Christ came into my life and I want every single person in this world to know that what he's done for me and more he is willing to do for anyone. Praise the Lord for Asa. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his fathers did. Now, here's a description of some of the right that he did. And he banished the perverted persons, talking about uh, the homosexual male prostitutes that had been allowed to flourish in Judah. Uh, Under the reign of his father and his grandfather, they were involved in the worship of Ashtoreth. They were involved in the worship of Baal. Baal, The worship of, of Baal was the worship of nature. It was very, very sensual, very, very gross, terrible. Uh, sexual practices that were involved. Ashtoreth was kind of like the count female counterpart of Baal. And so all of this stuff was going on. And so there was heterosexual sin. There was homosexual sin. You would go to these high places to worship these gods. And I mean, all holiness was off the table. It was you could do whatever you wanted. And that's exactly what they did. And so here he comes in and he banishes the homosexual male prostitutes that were used in the worship of the Canaanite gods and then he did more than that he removed and i like this next word all the idols that his fathers had his fathers had made so he came in you've got generations here now of idols that have been uh, astreth poles, uh, idols to Baal, all these things that now permeate the land. He went through and he wiped all of them out, all of their idolatry. And he's commended for it in the eyes of the Lord. You think about the culture that we live in. We've got to make a decision as Christians whether we're going to be a Rehoboam or in a hijim, or whether we're going to be in an Asa. And in order to hear, he did that which was right in the Lord, there has to be a stand against homosexuality as a lifestyle that is acceptable to God. It is sin. And there needs to be a stand not only against that, but against idolatry, which is the worship of any created thing. Materialism, which is just rampant in our culture. read a letter to the editor this week where... Uh, some uh, he identified himself as a practicing homosexual, and he was going to set all of us straight on how we should view uh, all of this. And and he he was upset with the fact that we as Christians call that practice unnatural when he considers it to be natural. And the idea that he was trying to portray in his letter and communicate, and he's very confused. I want to, I'm going to try and look up his name and call him. Um, but he looks at it and considers something to be natural because he has a feeling inside of him to engage sexually in a certain way. So to him, natural is simply doing what your fallen nature tells you to do. And so he has a problem with God's claim that homosexuality is unnatural. God calls homosexuality unnatural, and he and he says that he the, the the case that Paul lays by the Holy Spirit against it is that it is not only obviously wrong because God condemns it as a means of sexual expression, but also that nature condemns it. You you take two men and you put them together, and what they are physiologically, um, there's no Place that's been provided in nature to engage in sexual activity. Nature didn't provide it for that because it's not intended to happen. So, if we go down the road and we say everything needs to be accepted that I consider to be a natural urge of my flesh, you got to take all the laws off of the books. We get to do anything that we want, which is basically what was happening in Judah at the time. If something is natural just because I have a desire to do it, then, and you have a desire to do whatever you want to do, and you multiply that through the culture, you have a world you don't want to live in. But that's not how God talks about it. So he talks about it, and and he condemns it from one end of the Bible to the other. And I did a study on this a, a while back when that proposition was being handled and dealt with it, what I felt was exhaustively, and I'll refer you to that. If you want to tear into it a little more biblically, I would like to say this, though, in repeating what I said on that day. It is fascinating because any time I bring up homosexuality in this culture, even in this church, I can count on somewhere between one and five to seven people getting up and walking out just at the very mention of the subject matter, let alone uh, addressing it. It's just the way that it goes in the culture. But the idea of the person who is practicing homosexuality thinking that God is against them uh, for condemning the sin not only misunderstands the heart of God, but it misunderstands the physical evidence. The Centers for Disease Control in the United States of America, hardly a bastion of conservative or biblical thinking in the United States of America, considering how it, it handles Uh, Some diseases, they did a study on homosexual males and the average homosexual male uh, in, in, in the average male in general in the culture lives to something like 76 in the United States, 76 years old. The average homosexual male dies just short of the age of 40. And you say, well, that's because of AIDS. Now, if you factor AIDS into the whole thing, even those that don't get AIDS, there's just like a six months differential in the group. You have a lifestyle that on average shaves three decades of life off of a human being's life. God loves us. That's why he gives his commandments in his word. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad for us. He's the creator. He knows what he's talking about. And so here is Asa. He comes in, makes a stand, and he makes a stand against this uh, uh, homosexuality and the idolatry of the culture. And we need to make the same stands uh, ourselves. And then he removed Ma'aka, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. They made them in the, in, in the shape of sexual organs in, in the worship of her in these groves that they would go to to worship her. And what Asa did is he went and he cut down. I like this. I mean, these are these are permanent kind of words. He cut down her obscene image and then he wasn't content with that. He burned it. Just burn that right in front of Granny. He burned, <laughs> burn that image in the book of Kidron. I mean, there's no getting that thing back. She's just in shock. He cuts the thing down and then he burns the whole thing before her eyes, and it's really very, very beautiful. That as you look at Asa, that in in his desire to serve God and to obey God, uh, his relationship with the Lord. His uh, love for God, he put it even above family relationships. This was no big deal. I mean, here in this culture, we're, ha- we're fairly irreverent toward older people or toward moms or grandparents. Or the, Not in that ancient culture. For a, a son or a grandson to stand and publicly humiliate in a righteous kind of way, it had to be done. An older member of the family. I mean, he had to think about that. And yet he loves God and obeying God's word even more than he loves his grandmother. And so down it goes. God's word is the standard. And every single one of us as Christians, we're going to face that that challenge in our lives at some time or another. Where we're going to be forced to choose between obeying the Lord or pleasing family. And there should never be any relationship in our lives that is ever more important to us than our relationship for the Lord. And then, but let me say that no human relationship will ever truly suffer for that fact. It may not be fun for everyone, but as we obey the Lord, we are doing what is best for the people that are a part of our lives. Jesus put it this way. And he said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And so he cut it all down. Then there's that word in verse 14, but. But the high places were not removed. These were the hilltops where they set up all of these groves and where all that worship was going. On. Asa went in and he took out all of the idols, removed all of that. But he didn't destroy the groves that were on the, on the top of these hills and these as places of, of worship. And God took notice of it. And he said, nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all of his days. God noticed that. And when I see the Lord one day. I don't want him to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, but. I don't want a but assessment. I don't want an accept assessment. And I think it's important for us to just as we sit before the Lord tonight and say, well, he would, he would look in general. He would look at my life and he would say that, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But there probably be two or three things that I know right off of the top of my head that. That he'd say, except to or but to. And those are the things that we, why we go into the word of God tonight. If anything comes to our mind like that, then we realize, I don't want to hear that but from the Lord one day. I don't want to hear except from the Lord one day. I just want it to be a straight. He did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And that means obeying him in, in every area. It's so important. And I think that one of the reasons that Asa Didn't remove the groves or the high places is it just speaks to how um, ingrained this had become now after a couple of generations in the nation of, of Israel. And so what what Asa needed to do and he did a pretty good job of it, but he was a little incomplete in doing it was the importance of not being formed by the culture, not being formed by the morals of the culture. Not feeling guilty that, all right, I've taken God's word 80%. If I push another 20% here, they're going to hate me. But taking it all the way to where it's supposed to go. And it's so easy to to allow the culture to push in on us and we then become um, accepting of a 60% Christianity or 70% Christianity or 80% Christianity instead of the, the full deal that God calls us to. And Asa gets a little bit in there on that. And, and, he, and he should have taken it all the way. I don't condemn him. That's not my, my job. I just observe it there and I allow it to be an exhortation in my heart. And I say it that it might be the same in you. And he also brought into the house of the Lord the things... Which his father had dedicated and the things which he himself had dedicated silver uh, and uh, uh, silver and gold and utensils. And so uh, there was prosperity associated with his reign and some of this wealth then returned uh, to the temple. Now, there was a war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all of their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Now, Ramah was a a city about five and a half miles to the north of Jerusalem. It sat on the main trade route, north-south trade route, related to Israel. So basically what uh, Baasha is doing here is he's trying to close off traffic from going into Judah and especially trade. Whoever would control this city now would control the trade route, and he could strangle the southern kingdom of Judah off from revenue and and this kind of thing. And so this is what he's uh, endeavoring uh, to do. So Asa then took, this is his. Uh, how he responded to it. He took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house, took all of this wealth that God had brought in, and he delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, who was the king at that time of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus. And here's the proposal that he gives to him. Let there be a treaty between you and me. As there was between my father and your father. See, I've sent you a present of silver and gold, and here's what I'd like you to do for me. I want you to break your treaty that you have with Baasha, the king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. In other words, I want you to attack him in the north so that he has to pull his military off of the building of this city in order to deal with. With your attack in the north. And so Ben Hadad heeded King Asa, and he sent the captains of his army against the cities of Israel in the north. He attacked Aijon and Dan, Be- uh, uh, Abelbeth, uh, Ma'akah, and all Chinneroth. And Chinneroth speaks of of the Sea of Galilee and that region and all the land of Naphtali. Now, it happened when Baasha heard of this attack, he stopped building Rama and he remained in Terza. So he went uh, through to the north and um, and uh, handled the attack. And this was a, a, a to deal with the attack. And this was success, the success that Asa wanted. Asa then made a proclamation Throughout all Judah, none was exempted. And they went out and they took all the stones and the timber that were being used for the building of Ramah. And uh, he then took those, uh, deconstructed the city and then built two cities. uh, One of them called Geba of Benjamin and the other Mizpah, two cities that were in in the north of Judah to kind of make them uh, defensive cities. There's the interesting thing about uh, Asa in this. Second Chronicles records for us the fact that early in his reign, he was attacked by a unbelievable uh, army uh, from Ethiopia, numbering one million soldiers. Have you ever been to Israel? I mean, the whole the whole country of Israel is is smaller than New Jersey. So you cut that in half and you got a, a million man invasion Plus 300 chariots. Asa looks at that. Happens early in his reign. He sees this. He's completely overwhelmed. He's got a military. But it is not up to this task. He cries out to the Lord for the Lord to help him in this battle. And God supernaturally involves himself in the battle. And the Ethiopian army is uh, utterly defeated and crushed. So early in Asa's reign, he was very, very dependent Upon God. But here's a funny thing that happens, not just in Asa, but in us as we walk with the Lord. Pretty soon, as we walk with the Lord o- over time, what can start to happen in our lives is you know, you get a little bit of a savings account, get a little equity in a house maybe, or you get a little bit of this or a little bit of that, and then now when something happens in our life, We've got some margins to deal with it before at the beginning, it was all God or we're going to die. That's just the way that it is. But now we got options. Now we have some things. Now we have some gold and some silver to begin to manipulate the situation with. We have to be so careful because relatively speaking, a walk of obedience to God's word does result. In some material prosperity. Not always. I'm not talking about Rolls Royces. I'm not talking about living in a palace. But but it is the way to live. If for no other reason, we're not wasting our money on lotto or gambling or going to Vegas or sin or whatever it might be. So money goes places that it didn't used to go. And we have to be careful not to take those blessings of the Lord and then use them against him. So that when a new situation arises, we say, I won't seek the Lord related to this. I've got enough to write out a check related to this, and I'll write it over here, and he'll do this, and she'll do this, and the whole thing will will turn out all right. And so that's basically what he did there. A guy by the name of Hananiah uh, comes. He's a prophet. Uh, he comes to uh, Asa after the success of this whole plan. And I'm building to a point, by the way. Some of you aren't confident in that fact. Now, I reserve the right to forget that point before I get to it. But I am trying to build to a point. But anyway, so he does this whole thing, this whole manipulation, instead of turning to the Lord. And this prophet comes to Asa and says, hey, what are you doing here? What you don't realize is ben Hadad is trouble." You thought Baasha was an enemy? You have no idea. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, is going to cause more problems for Israel and Judah than you can dream of, as we're going to see in coming weeks. And you've made him an ally, and you've encouraged him in attacking uh, the Jewish people. And then he reminded him, did you already forget about how early in your Christian life, so to speak, God delivered you of the Ethiopians? When you were so overwhelmed and so outnumbered that now when this even lesser thing arises later in your life, you don't even honor God before the nation in, in seeking him for deliverance in this. See, what King Asa was doing wasn't just he's a leader. He's not just a guy that's living in a neighborhood somewhere and he does something and only his wife and his kids are affected by it. What he did is he modeled in front of the whole nation that when you have resources to manipulate a situation, you don't need to talk to God about that. And he dishonored God before his people. And so what did Asa do with this prophet who rebuked him? Imprisoned him. Asa began so good as a king, but he turned in his later years as a king. He doesn't finish very well at all. And one of the lessons of Asa is that God treasures our faith late in our Christian life just as much as he does and did early in our Christian life. The interesting thing to me about, and it has a great ministry lesson here, but also a great individual lesson for us as, as Christians. And we'll stop here tonight, but, but let me lay down the lesson that's so important. Asa comes up with this plan, and the thing about the plan, the bad thing about the plan, is it worked. The dangerous thing about the plan is that it worked. And we live in a time, not only in the world, where virtually everything is judged by, no matter what a person does, how terrible it might be, people look and say, but it worked. So you've got the end uh, justify the justifies the means in the culture. But even within Christianity today, and I have no intention of picking on the body of Christ, but there's important lessons that are found in this. I can't even communicate to you as a pastor the unbelievable pressure that is on Christian pastors in the United States of America to resort to all kinds of nonsense in order to manipulate growth within a church, to try and make it bigger, to do this, to do that. The pressures that are on pastors from boards to produce no matter what it takes. And so... People begin to devise all of these things. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Pretty soon the church becomes this entertainment center. There's all kinds of craziness going on. People are showing up just because. No telling what they're going to do this week. I think, I think they may bring giraffes and zebras into the sanctuary. Or something as a reenactment of the days of creation. There's, and, and I've got my tongue in cheek, but there's really this kind of pressure. And the whole mantra today is... It works. It works. It draws a crowd. But the issue in the body of Christ, as old as the Old Testament, is not whether it works, but does it honor God? There is a lot that works that dishonors God. It dishonors Him by not causing people to put their faith in the Lord to grow deep in the Lord to go deep in prayer with the Lord I want to say to myself I exhort myself first but every one of you as Christians you are you are involved in ministry and service to the Lord there's a call upon your life it works is not the standard that's not the issue the standard that we have to run everything through in terms of what we do and what we model is, will this honor God? And that's a much higher standard. But it's the only way we're going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Now, here's the deal. We can look and say, well, yeah, you pastors, oh, you got I'll tell you. Ooh-hoo. But it's true of every single One of us as Christians where we will be faced in business or faced in personal relationship or some kind of a situation where we're going to be tempted to manipulate it on the basis of some kind of power or pull that we have on the thing. And then we come and we make the thing work and we look back on it and we say, wow, that was a success at work. And then we forget at how many people watched us manipulate the situation rather than honor God and our faith in God in the situation to make it into what he wanted it to be. And so it's not just leaders. It's all of us in the body of Christ. We face the same thing. Most important thing is not yeah, but it works. That's nonsense. The most important thing is, does it honor God? And so. He took and let me just I promised you, didn't I? But I want to do the final two verses so we can move into the next group the, the next week and the rest of all the acts of Asa, all his night, all that he did and the cities which he built. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. He picked up some kind of a foot disease. And so he rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His father and then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. And so jumping Jehoshaphat is who we'll be looking at next. And but let me close with this related to Asa. God makes note of it here, but he also he really makes note of it in Second Chronicles. Late in Asa's life, he got some kind of a disease in his feet. And God was careful to note that he went to the physicians and did not seek the Lord for healing in his feet and the the intimation is is that if he had sought God for healing he would have received it so again here we have a king whose name is it's a good it's a good name in the Old Testament but there's things to be learned he began his relationship with God with tremendous faith and and prayer and, and and prayer is an expression of faith and he began that way But the older he got, the more he moved away from involving the Lord in the situations in his life and and honoring the Lord with his faith in those situations. And it's an important lesson. We look at look at us in the room. You can be 20 years old and you can be a veteran as a Christian walk with the Lord for, you know, 15 years or we can be a little bit older chronologically and walk with the Lord for decades and decades But it's good for us just to stop and pull back and to ask ourselves, do I honor God in praying about anything and everything like I did at the beginning? In the early days, so often of our Christian life, that God spoke to the church at Ephesus and said, remember your first works. Sometimes there are things that happen early in our Christian life where that will be the standard for the rest of our Christian life. Our temptation will be to move away from that high standard. It isn't always that the longer we go, we become automatically better in all areas. And so tonight for us to look and say, am I honoring the Lord with my faith at this time in my Christian life with the realization that people are are watching and they're coming to conclusions, not just looking at it and say, well, yeah, that worked, but looking at God answering our prayers and then God being honored through our lives in the way that he desires to be and blessing our lives to the degree that he desires to do. Let's stand together and we'll pray.